welcome to the Rational Parliament. I'm Adam Smith. I'm the founder and the clerk to the Rational Parliament. Let me introduce the other functionaries of the Parliament, first of all. Johnny Unger is a linguist from Lancaster University, and he's our rhetoric officer. So every so often, he's going to interrupt the debate and point out how people are using and abusing and misusing language. And that's really quite good fun and interesting. And if only the House of Commons had someone like Johnny, that'd be really quite neat, wouldn't it? Michael Brooks is a science writer and journalist, and he is the Speaker of the House. Uh, he's in charge of this debate. He's going to curate the debate. He's going to tell you when to speak and when to shut up. And Alice Casey from Nesta is our process officer. Alice is going to inject some structure and some process into the debate. Remember that this is an experiment. This is only the second sitting that we've had. Please bear with us. It's messy. It's chaotic. It's fun. Um, we're going to start with some expert testimony. We've got Joseph Dutton from Leicester University who's going to talk to us about some of his research into hydraulic fracturing. And I would like to declare this parliament open and ask Joseph to give us uh, five minutes to kick us off. Thank you. Okay. Um, first of all, just to let you know, coming at this from, uh, from an academic institution, um, the research you do at the University of Leicester is essentially economic geography research on global gas markets and UK energy. Um, we are funded by the UK Energy Research Centre, which is um, an academic funding coming down from central government. We don't have any funding from, from the industry, um, the oil and gas industry, or any of the oil field services companies. Um, so we don't have any pressure or any um, financial influence on the research. And you'll have to, to pardon me for reading this out as well, but I think it's the best way to get it over succinctly. The development of shale gas in the US has caused a stir across the globe for both good and bad reasons. Many countries hope to develop shale, seeking to replicate the US's employment and financial gains, along with replicating the low domestic energy prices and move towards natural gas self-sufficiency. But there are also those that worry about the negative impacts that shale gas development may have on the environment, both locally, nationally, and also globally in terms of climate change. In the UK, the opponents and proponents of UK shale gas development point to the US experience for evidence of both benefits and threats that fracking and shale gas can bring. Before considering the differing viewpoints, it's important to note that, despite what you may hear, fracking has already been carried out in the United Kingdom. Over 200 conventional oil and gas wells have been fracked in this country, including some horizontal wells at the Witch Farm oil field in Dorset and the Beckingham oil field in Nottinghamshire, and also in vertical gas wells in Lancashire, geothermal development in Cornwall, and coal-bed methane projects in Scotland. However, at the same time, fracking for shale gas is different to conventional gas, both in geological and from a technical and engineering standpoint, so direct comparisons are not necessarily possible. Opponents of fracking in the UK base many of their arguments on the experiences of shale development in the US, using alleged incidents to highlight the risks and damage that may occur should development begin in this country. However, false comparisons have been made between the two countries. For example, there are assertions that the patchy regulation of fracking in the US, including a number of legislative exemptions, will be seen here in the UK. It is currently the case that all parts of the fracking process are covered by existing UK legislation and the final decision on development rests with local planning authorities, not national government. Those arguing against development based on environmental impacts also point to studies from the US detailing alleged groundwater and aquifer contamination, water usage issues, air pollution and potential fugitive methane emissions. Shale development and fracking do have impacts as all industrial processes do, particularly those involving mining and oil and gas extraction. However, in the case of the US, further studies into the initial studies have shown the impacts to be less than initially claimed, or in some cases completely unrelated to fracking. For example, water usage for fracking a well appears to be high, but the overall water that shale gas sectors use is lower than that of other mining industries and agriculture. Nonetheless, the development of shale gas in areas that are already subject to water shortages is clearly an issue. The US Environmental Protection Agency estimates of fugitive emissions from fracking are now lower than initially thought, while re-examination of apparent cases of water contamination from fracking has now determined the cause of substandard well completion 
or naturally occurring methane in the water, not the process of fracking itself. Claims of fractures extending up from fracking zones to aquifers and creating pathways for pollutants have also been disproved based on broad analysis of fracking across the US in multiple states. Induced seismicity has been a contentious issue in the UK following seismic events at Quadrilla Resources site in Lancashire. Although the causality has not been denied, coal mining, geothermal wells and re-injection of gas and waste water have been shown to cause more seismic events than fracking, while the geology of each well site determines the likelihood of such events in the first place. Waste re-injection of water and gas is now regarded as the primary cause of seismic events in the US rather than fracking. Thus, while no one would claim that shale gas production using horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing as risk-free, those risks are of a magnitude associated with any industrial process. The real problem is the fact that shale gas drilling requires a large number of wells to be drilled to sustain production and the cumulative impact of the large-scale development of this industrial process is now only becoming evident in the US and it is still not appreciated in the UK debate. Hopefully it will be by the end. Misinformation and accuracies are equally present in the pro-shale gas camp though. Despite differences in the UK onshore supply chain, some areas of regulation, planning and availability of space compared with the US, there are assertions from some that the development here will occur unimpeded and will have the same economic and employment benefits. Of course, any development would create jobs, but the number of wells that will be drilled, the labour requirements for the drilling and the volume of gas that will be produced are all unknown and unknowable at present. Therefore, forecasts of UK employment, revenue and gas production growth must be treated with caution. Furthermore, the total number of wells in the UK would be far lower than the US due to smaller resources, less space for development and continual development and improvement with drilling techniques. There is currently only one partially fracked well in the UK. By contrast, in the US, on average 25,000 wells are drilled a year to be fracked. Any UK development would be much smaller than in the US in both gas production and the total number of wells. As such, both the cumulative position uh, cumulative positive and negative impacts locally and nationally would be smaller than in the US. A fundamental point of justification for the UK government's support for domestic shale development is the alleged impact it will have on domestic gas prices. In the US, the wholesale price of gas fell by 85% from 2008 to 2012, bringing down domestic and industrial energy bills. Despite the fall in the US, there is little evidence to suggest a similar situation would arise in the UK due to the two countries having very different gas market structures. The US gas price fell because of a large increase, large increase in gas supplies into a relatively isolated market with limited export capacity during a time of reduced gas demand. The UK net balancing point hub at which gas is sold over here is a more fluid and interconnected market with gas entering it from the UK, production, Norway, continental Europe and LNG all being traded there. The interconnected nature of the UK means production and LNG ports are already exported to Europe if price signals determine, and shale gas would also be susceptible to such movements and would ultimately be competing on price with other gas supplies. Any commercial UK shale, UK shale gas production is unlikely before 2020, but debates are being framed as if production is imminent. There are obstacles for the industry to overcome before development can occur, with obtaining a social license to operate the largest. The full potential of UK shale cannot be fully analysed and understood until exploratory drilling occurs, but with such strong opposition, this is proving to be a struggle in itself. Thus, while we can say that the concerns are about the negative environmental impacts of shale gas, and they are real, but manageable, we can also say that the level of possible future production in the UK is almost impossible to predict until there's been a meaningful exploration programme, and even then the costs may be higher and the benefits more limited than those experienced in the US. A UK shale gas revolution is unlikely, and significant domestic production is very unlikely before the end of the decade. In fact, with the battle lines so firmly drawn, the UK may decide not to develop its shale gas resources and may favour alternative low-carbon sources of power generation and continue to import conventional gas from abroad. We'll give them a round of applause. We're going to start the debate now. We're going to focus primarily for the first 15 minutes on environmental impact and safety. If you have a contribution to make and you are professionally involved with the industry or in research, then I'd like you to make that clear, please. But can I ask, first of all, um, somebody uh, called Lee Taylor 
So my point was related to something the previous speaker said about the risks involved in industry. All industrial processes are risks, and just that these risks can be mitigated. They can be mitigated with uh, um, suitable policy, legislation, and uh, responsible operators. So you're optimistic that actually the, the risks that, that are so much talked about actually can be dealt with? Yeah. Does somebody else want to, to respond to that? Well, actually, I mean, I'm a member of Parliament, so I listened, Angela Smith, I'm from the north of England, and I don't really have a great concern about the environmental impact. Public Health England issued a report only three weeks ago which made it absolutely clear that if the industry were to be regulated according to current UK standards, and if it were to be, and the other critical factor here is that it should be a well, they should, the, the project should be well managed. So management of the operations and proper rigorous regulation according to current UK standards should ensure that all risks would be suitably managed. And contained. Can I just take that and come back to Joseph? Are you confident that there is enough regulation in place currently to deal with uh, the hydraulic fracturing? Overall environmental impact, obviously, you know, um, emissions, water usage, chemicals, pollution, they're associated with many other industries. But if we want to have a huge widespread in, in development of shale, then obviously it can be scaled up. As, as I mentioned in the, the opening statement, in America there are a number of exemptions in terms of um, you know, water being the main one in terms of what regulation covers it. In the United Kingdom, there's huge amounts of both um, domestic and also European Union level legislation covering air quality, chemicals, water and how they're dealt with. And as I say, existing regulation covers every single part of the fracking and, and shale gas process. So, yeah, I'm, I'm confident that if yeah. it was to be done, if the right resources were, were given to the regulatory authorities, it could be done without risk. Okay, you sir. Fracking is so widespread, there are going to be thousands of small sites, and there's no way that these small contractors are going to be able to hand to deal with the overheads of regulation. It's all very well to talk about tight regulation on a nuclear site where the turnover is enormous, but also millions of people and vast amounts of trained people are available to do this, but this is going to be lots of little people so all over the place and it's going to be impossible to regulate to this standard. Okay, that's a fair point. Just one point uh, to take into account, uh, it's been calculated that underground there's more, by volume, there's actually more life underground than there is above ground. Bacteria, uh, if you include everything. So has that actually been taken into account? You're going to dis a whole ecosystem underground. What, the whole what, evid what evidence do you have for life a mile and a half underground? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a geologist. I've never heard of this one. There is okay. masses of amounts of life underground. Thank you. Um, I want to stick, if I can, to um, environmental impacts for now. Um, water contamination, seismicity, uh, and there were concerns over methane leakage as well. A uh, uh, gentleman, the member there at the back with the beard. Um, just getting back to the regulatory aspects of it, coming from a position that, that um, if we assume that um, it is possible to regulate these kind of wells so that to an acceptably safe level, the problem is how that will be done. Will it be done with enough resources? I think you, somebody else mentioned about the, the resources for it. I think it seems to me that you could assume that, that it can be done relatively safely, at least to a safe enough level, but will the resources, the government resources be there um, to do it on past history? I'm not sure the Right. The, the regulation will be funded well enough to, to, to be able to do it. Thank you. Um, there was uh, somebody called Rita actually made a, a point of this on the, on the board. Well, we were up in the northwest on holidays and we were talking to somebody about it in the pub, like you do, and they were saying that they get round the planning permissions by just saying, oh, we're just building a borehole, and then they can progress without then... Um, having the proper monitoring of what they're actually doing. And that has affected the water tables in some areas where the cattle won't drink from areas where they would drink before. Um, can, I, can I ask um, Will here, who's a researcher on public perceptions of fracking, I was wondering, do we have an issue? Is there a mismatch between the public perceptions of, of environmental issues and the realities of them? There is this sort of 
discrepancy between what you people say down the pub and what you actually can find with some scientific research. Obviously, it's all quite early days, so at the moment, it is tricky to make factual assertions saying this is what's happening, this is not what's happening, but I would be very careful on these assertions that there are pollutants to the water table and that um, if you do drill a borehole, then the industry will just go rampant and start um, fracking without proper permission because that isn't how it's regulated. I'm Mike Bradshaw. I'm also at the University of Leicester. I think one of the important lessons learned from the US experience was the lack of benchmarking in terms of environmental assessment. So many of the, many of the accusations made about things like groundwater pollution have proved very difficult to prove because no one took measurements before the drilling started. So that one of the things that does need to be done, and the, and the British Geological Society survey are doing this at the moment, is a nationwide assessment of the current levels of fugitive me- of methane leakage, for example, and methane in the water table, so that we have a very clear understanding of the situation in the environment before any drilling starts. It's very difficult to prove that the cattle won't drink the water if you didn't know what the water was like before the drilling started. So if you are in a local area and this is being threatened, one of the things you need to campaign for is a very, very thorough environmental assessment prior to any drilling activity. Then if you make those claims, you're able to back them up. Because many landowners in the United States now are simply being told by the, by the developers they have to pay thousands of dollars to carry out those environmental assessments. Okay. So, that's the, so benchmarking, environmental benchmarking is critically important. I have concerns about the use of water in order to get the shale gas out because my understanding from a Guardian article, so there's my evidence, is it takes something like four times the amount of water than the gas produced. That we already have regulation in this country that allows water companies to take extract water out of um, areas uh, and then put it elsewhere. So basically transport the water away from its natural water table. So if we're going to regulate this in the same way that the water companies are regulated, how can we be sure that the water taken out or, or produced in order to do the fracking is going to go back in the right place, um, let alone whether it's polluted after that? Okay, thank you. I'm going to pause here and just come to Johnny. We're going to move on to a different topic. We've got a lot to get through tonight. So, Johnny, tell us your thoughts on the language so far. I'm very impressed that people have not really resorted to very emotive arguments so far, although there have been some appeals to emotion, as you would expect. And in fact, I think we may hear later on, emotion is quite important in these kinds of debates. A few comments about uh, Joseph's contribution. Hope you don't mind me singling you out. Now, he started by stating his credentials and mentioning his funding, which is a way of anticipating and diffusing potential critique of him. ask him to. You did ask him to as well, but he might have done it anyway, and several other people have also um, perhaps mentioned any links they might have or interests they might have. So by doing that, of course, people are expecting someone else to argue with them and say, ah, but you're funded by such and such, or you're a member of this organization. So it's a way of anticipating arguments and hopefully diffusing them beforehand. Uh, In Joseph's blog post, which, which he read out for us, there are lots of oppositions, UK versus US, locally and globally. And I think this is not surprising, given that he's trying to take a very balanced point of view. This came across very clearly. But there were also lots of appeals to numbers. So over 200 wells, one in the UK versus 25,000 per year in the US. And this is a strategy that's sometimes used by people to try and win arguments, uh, simply by, I suppose, overwhelming people by numbers. Not saying that he did that, but that is sometimes the case. And I thought it was an interesting um, contrast between the sometimes very academic language which came through in the contribution and perhaps some passages which were a bit more what you might call journalistic. So different kinds of writing, different kinds of language coming together. Um, He did have lots of passive structures. So what passive structures do in languages, they hide agency. So we don't know who is doing things or who is having things done to them sometimes. This is quite common in scientific writing, but also in political language, in journalistic language, when people want to avoid assigning responsibility. And as someone who's a, you know, a scientist who's trying to give a balanced picture, that's something we'd expect as well. I'll move on to some of the other contributions. Um, again, uh, in Lee's very short contribution, Lee Taylor, we had, again, a passive risks can be mitigated. That might lead us to ask, well, who is actually going to do this mitigating? 
And this is something that we had in other contributions as well, people turning processes or actions into nouns. So that is another way of hiding, or not necessarily deliberately, but perhaps accidentally, not really saying very clearly who is going to be doing things or who is having things done to them. There's a lot more I could say. I'll just briefly mention Angela Smith's contribution. Now, she did something very interesting. She said that the Public Health England report made it absolutely clear that, and then she brought in lots of hypothetical structures. So if this, if that, it should this or should that. So that's quite a, I think, quite a, uh, a good strategy to perhaps try and give the impression that something is very certain, but still, you know, not stated explicitly. Thank you, Johnny. Great. Um, this, is, this is how we keep our experts grounded, you see. I want to move on, uh, because we have very limited time, to an issue that's already come up really obliquely. Uh, do we want to divert funding away from renewable energy? There's a lot of talk of, of shale gas, for instance, as a bridging fuel. So somehow, while we use shale gas, we'll also develop uh, renewable energies at the same time, which will then come online and be able to take us into a green future. That's, that's one of the narratives of, of, of shale gas and hydraulic fracturing, uh, reasons for doing it. Let me ask, is it Maya who, who raised this point? As with any government initiative or government pot of money, it's a finite amount. And uh, my concern was that a big investment in fracking, that it would divert funds and energy and resources from more long-term renewable and sustainable energy sources. Just, just one comment. Really, renewable energies, while obviously great, they don't provide a base load of energy required uh, for a proper national grid to function. And gas energy or nuclear energy is probably a lower carbon way of doing that than, uh, say, coal. Yes, it will divert investment from other energy sources that have a better long-term prospect. That shale gas might be just a flash in the pan, it might last for a few years and then it will all be over and you'll have your environmental damage and nothing much to show for it and you'll, you'll be 20 years back in the other things. Nuclear energy is uh, an important part of the mix. Despite popular ideas, there's been a huge underinvestment in this. There's been virtually no R&D done since the 1970s and there are very good prospects of low-cost nuclear energy that will use up a lot of our uh, waste products as okay. well. Yeah, I just, I wonder if it really will divert investment away from renewables. I mean, maybe Joseph can add a bit here, but is it, you know, is the, the fracking industry really looking for uh, subsidies are asking for subsidies, and in terms of R&D, um, the sort of investment that's required up until 2020 is that government investment. Is it really on a scale that's really going to detract from the renewables agenda? If we're talking about private investment, do we really think that fracking is going to crowd out uh, private investment in renewables? I'll, I'll take it instead. I mean, it's, the thing is, it's not a question of gas or no gas, because gas has a role to play in the process of decarbonisation. We've already had a, a dash for gas, which replaced coal, and that's a large part of how we've decarbonised power generation. We can't do that again, uh, but gas has a role as a natural backup to, to renewable intermittency. So the question is going to be how much gas for how long? So the government has something called the gas generation strategy, which again came out last, no last November. There was a whole slew of government policy statements on energy, an energy strategy statement, a gas generation strategy. strategy. A gas generation strategy is essentially insurance policy. What happens if we don't build new nuclear power stations in time? What happens if we don't get enough renewable generation built? Okay. We need to make sure that we have enough gas generation capacity to cover the gaps. So when the wind doesn't blow, gas can back up. So what will happen in the future is that we will re rely on that gas less often than we do today. So you know, ca the capacity usage of gas power station in the UK today is about 60%. It could be as low as 20% or even lower than that. There are some gas power stations in Germany which haven't been switched on for nearly two years because of the penetration of renewables. So it's not gas or no gas, it's gas playing a different role. And how much gas depends on what happens to nuclear and renewables. The other thing to, to, to consider is that that gas doesn't have to be shale gas. 
Okay, so when you're talking about gas, the question is, okay, we're going to have some gas for a long time to come, and we, have, we may have more. There's huge uncertainty. But the question really is, okay, we're going to have gas. Does it have to be shale? Just on a, on a purely economical level, um, if it's going to be that successful, the price will come down significantly. And in this country, by all, from everyone's saying that it's going to be very expensive land values, controls. It's going to be a very expensive process in this country. And if it's that successful, that, as everyone's saying, the prices will come down significantly. So I think it may not even be a problem in that it'll be too expensive in this country to extract. We're already um, giving tax breaks for the exploration of um, shale gas. And we're about to roll back um, investment in renewables. Let me ask the question, do you feel uncomfortable about the idea of shale gas exploration, the sort of interest and the political interest that's been shown in shale gas exploration by the government? Do you feel uncomfortable about the fact that that may well uh, result in lower amounts of money available for development of renewables? It's absolutely overwhelming. Let's come on to the issue, an issue that was raised by um, Chris S and Jenny R, which are that there are many vested interests here. How can citizens get impartial information and not emotive? So, Chris, could you uh, just kind of tell us what you're thinking? Yeah, um, the impression I get when kind of trying to educate myself and others about the issue of fracking is that actually it's become kind of so intensely politicised, and each side really has made efforts to kind of muddy the water, if you'll pardon the pun, and that really hasn't helped in terms of even seeing which information that's being put into the bait is true or not, even if there is some. So let me open this up and ask Joseph to start off. I mean, do you think that there is impartial information coming through? Are you happy with the the kind of level of information that the public and politicians are getting on this? Or is this a a debate that's already um, being poisoned? It's it's, it's almost too late to to, to be talking about this. There's been so much misinformation on, on both sides. And I think instinctively people look towards a conservative government and oil and gas companies as being misinformative because of perhaps financial interests and and that's where regulation comes in. But at the same time, there are environmental groups who have their own biases, they have their own particular stance on something that can be quite quite grounded in ideology rather than the facts. I mean, if, if we take Bolcom as an example, the site down there, the amount of places you read about fracking for shale gas in Bolcom, and there was no fracking and it wasn't a gas well, it was an oil well. Are people repeating information that they believe to be correct or are they knowingly doing that to enhance their point? And on the flip side, you have the government perhaps talking about how it may lower bills, breaking our dependence on Russia, which doesn't exist in terms of gas. We get less than 1% from Russia. But it, they, they're very strong arguments in terms of backing up their points. And it's, it's difficult to to try and separate an ideological position because there are people in some very strong and trusted positions in the media, in academia, who may have their own... Not us, obviously. um, Who may may have their own position from which they're coming in the first place. Thank you. Yes, let's have a word from Angela Smith. If you dug down deep into the views of politicians within Parliament, you'd find more of a consensus than would perhaps be commonly perceived out there in the country. I do think, however, that there is a lack of good evidence-based information. There is a lack of that in Parliament. It's not being widely disseminated, but there is some good material out there. Um, Water UK will be coming out with a report very soon. We've had the Public Health England report, and I've got a report here from Environmental Data Services, an excellent report which lays out the pros and cons around all the environmental information and the carbon emissions the public safety risks, the noise impacts, the traffic impacts, all the the, the vast range of every single element associated with whether or not to frack and what fracking means. Hello, Felix Riley. It is a shame in these debates that you always get a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. The environmentalists hate it anyway, and the the moneyed, interested parties are always like a bit of a new money-making wheeze. And I think the only way to ever really get to the bottom of whether it is dangerous, whether, if you like, the Prime Minister is privy to the, the facts that we're not privy to, is the same way I would treat anything in this sort of situation, which is to surround David Cameron's house with fracking machines and just keep fracking till he breaks. <laughs> and then when he does want to leave his house, he has to go move next to a nuclear power station 
And it's because I'd like to know about that as well. Alistair Taylor, University of Nottingham. There seems to be a lot of scientific evidence which actually suggests fracking is probably relatively safe compared to other industrial processes. But the economic evidence is very woolly either way. And I think we need a lot more economic evidence to actually understand the viability of this across the United Kingdom. We're going to move on uh, to impact on affordability. It's basically, does fracking make financial sense in the UK? Okay, we think about the United States as being a kind of pretty much self-contained market. And in very simple terms, it does like work like e Economics 101 in terms of supply and demand. So at the moment, we have oversupply of gas to a market, and the price is very low. And the price is so low that some forms of shale gas drilling just cannot make money, so they don't drill. What they're drilling is gas that's got natural gas liquids, which has got additional value. The United Kingdom's gas market, it, it's similar in the sense that we have gas-to-gas -gas competition, which we don't have in continental Europe, but it's wide open. Now, we have domestic production. We have production that comes from Norway, which is landed first in the UK. We have interconnectors to the European market. So as far as the gas market is concerned, the channel doesn't exist. And then very recently, we've built a large amount of liquefied natural gas import capacity. So we are, we're in a situation where we've got a very open competitive gas market. Okay? And so it's determined by what is happening in, in a number of different markets, not just the cost in, in the UK. And there are times when the cost of gas is higher in continental Europe and gas flows into Europe. And at the moment, we're not importing liquefied natural gas because it's too expensive. It's all going to, to Japan. So with that very open gas market, we'd have to have an enormous amount of shale gas production to make an influence on the price. And it also means that the, pr the, the price that shale gas will attract is determined by that market price. And if shale gas production turns out to be very expensive, because of the regulatory costs imposed on it, it simply won't happen. Now, I, I, I actually agree that we shouldn't be subsidizing it. I, I really don't see the reason for that, and I don't think the industry wanted it. I, I, can, see, I can understand why we have got tax breaks in the North Sea, because we're, we're in a late stage of production there, and production costs go up. And therefore, we're trying to encourage companies to squeeze out what's left of oil and gas. But I really don't get it when it comes to onshore shale gas. And I think that, that, that is something we shouldn't have done. Okay, is there anyone in the room who thinks we should subsidize uh, production of onshore shale gas? Absolutely, overwhelmingly no. Let me ask another question. Would you prefer or would you like subsidies to be given to renewable, the development of renewable energies? Overwhelmingly, yes. I was interested by this assertion that the, the companies didn't want subsidies. Can you explain why they didn't want subsidies? They say it's hearsay. It's from being at industry conferences where it's quite clear that it's not something that they asked for. I mean, someone said earlier about the need for exploration. That is in, that it's, it's, we do need to find out. We do need to find out what it would cost economically, and we need to find out what it would cost environmentally to be able to make an informed decision. We can't base our decisions on the basis of what happens in Pennsylvania. I'm glad to hear you say we're not comparing ourselves with the states, except that it's a global market now. And if there are tax breaks for companies, and possibly even if there aren't, if the, if the price of gas extraction is less than the price that they're going to get for it, then, and if there's a lot of gas, then they're just going to go for it. This is an industry that has utterly no shame. They're collecting billions in profits already. They're putting up um, domestic bills by 9-10% willy-nilly without any recourse to um, the fact that maybe they could use their, their obscene profits to actually bring bills down. And on top of this, they're expecting the government to create the infrastructure of gas collection stations. Now, my understanding, which may be wrong, is that we don't have enough um, gas storage so that when we do bring gas in, we have to export it because it's got nowhere to go. Now, if they're expecting the government or therefore the taxpayer to pay for gas storage, and there's tons and tons of shale gas in the ground, then, you know, basically we're going to be ending up having that gas come out and then be shipped overseas. Um, or we're going to have to foot the bill for storage. And I just think, basically, the economic argument of this has not been explored properly. And the minute it turns out to be economically viable for companies to do this, they will do, they move heaven and earth in order to get government subsidies to do it on the cheap and rip off the taxpayer. Okay, thank you. And yes, that was a lot of rhetoric. <laughs> There's a, a, um, there was a contribution at the back from Angela Smith again. I just had to say something about the gas storage issue because, in actual fact, it, it's the big six that are really not interested 
in, um, it, it's not necessarily in their interest to see increased gas storage capacity. Earlier this year in March, when it was extremely cold, this country was in danger of running out of gas. It was when, within hours of running out of gas. And it was the, um, no, that is absolutely evidence because a large number of manufacturers actually were told that they would be cut off if there was no gas coming forward. The, the big energy intensive industries, the ceramics industry, the steel industry, and the chemicals industry were told, because they're always first in mind to be cut off when gas supplies run low. And it was um, the, the gas companies had to import at very short notice extra supplies of gas. And the impact of that was a big spike in prices. That's the price you pay if you don't have sufficient storage capacity. And that's um, one of the reasons why there is an argument for, for building more gas storage in this country. And the reasons the big six don't necessarily want that is because you would have to have a public service obligation in place, which would mean that they would be required to use that storage and to make use of it rather than bringing and importing gas from abroad and using that as an excuse to put prices up. There's a member here. One, did you want to come back on that? Um, no, well, it was two things. First of all, evidence, please, on that, because that's nothing which ever really hit the media, which is my main medium for finding out about these kind of things. So it kind of, I was really would like to see evidence around the, how we were hours away. Um, but I feel like we're talking about, well, obviously we're talking about fracking, but actually what we're not talking about as much, which I thought we would, is about renewables and actually why we're spending so much paying so much attention to fracking when actually we should be paying more attention okay. to renewables and it links back to that economic business case. And I was wondering if there's any other members that actually have more informed views about um, um, investment in renewables. We are going to have to close this side, but that's something that, that we can raise on the policy board during the break. Um, I'm going to take one more contribution, then I'm going to wrap up this half, and we'll have a recess. I just have some a response, actually, with that, with information, so if I could do that. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, in a conversation this weekend with the vice CEO of Shell in Abu Dhabi, he used um, the explanation of bridge energy to kind of justify the use of fracking in communities like ours in Wales, um, stating that with an expected usage of the next 40 or 50 years, this is one of the necessary means that... Um, will kind of continue to keep gas prices and oil prices and energy prices within the UK at a stable level while we do work on improving renewables, which is a stated commitment of that organisation. I've got to let Johnny speak for a moment. Okay, well, just very briefly there, um, from the, the member in the black jacket, we had another quite emotive um, attack on the energy industry. And uh, regardless of how many of us may feel in this room, many of us may agree, some of us may disagree, um, I think there were clearly some phrases in there, uh, an industry that has no shame, uh, doing things willy-nilly, moving heaven and earth, ripping off the taxpayer, which perhaps we could say don't really give a very balanced view. Uh, and again, you know, that's your right to hold those views, but it's something that we should all be aware of, this use of emotive language. Um, I don't have that much else to say about the last segment that hasn't been said yet, but I would, if I may, like to give a rhetoric award to the member in the green jumper here who earlier on used the metaphor to muddy the water, which I think is a really, a really good metaphor to use in this debate. So uh, I, I'm handing you the rhetoric award for this evening. The, the motion, this house supports exploratory fracking to see if it is economically viable. Okay, let me, um, as time's moving on, let me just check that Johnny's happy with the, the motion uh, as it stands, and then I'm going to ask you to vote, I'm afraid. Just a very brief comment that this appears to be quite a simple motion, but as we've seen, not everyone in the room agrees about what economic means, what viable means, and this is actually something that policymakers often do in order to get more people to agree to something, they make it vaguer. I ask you to vote that this House supports exploratory fracking to see if it is economically viable. 31 to 31. It's 31 to 31. <laughs> wow, okay. I don't have a casting vote. <laughs> okay, that's, that's very interesting. Thank you. Um, that's great. Alison, can we move on to the, the, the next one? So, what does a draw mean? What does a draw mean? I'm not even going to begin to go there. 
Okay, so we've got one. Uh, this one's about the market. So let the market decide. I'll let you talk a bit more about that. Do you want to read out your motion? Let the market decide fairly by removing tax breaks and fossil fuel subsidies. Historically, we've, we've seen absolute fortunes being ploughed into infrastructure for fossil industries. And uh, we're still subsidising fossil fuels, which is something that's not talked about very much. The, the current fossil subsidy is twice as much as the renewable subsidy at this present time. So this House would propose to remove subsidies and, and tax breaks. OK, let me get some comments on this. Uh... Um, I couldn't agree more. I think we should let the market decide by removing tax breaks and subsidies for both fracking and fossil fuels and for renewables. Let's m let the market decide. When you say twice as many subsidies for fossil fuels as renewables, do you mean in total or per watt of energy produced? Um, I can't cite my evidence, but um, I have read that evidence okay. and heard it. We're not expecting people to come armed with sheaves of paper, so um, can we have a comment here, please? And then we also have a comment from our rhetoric champion. Over here. Um, a quick response. It is, if you looked at it on energy produced... Renewables, unfortunately, create a tiny fraction of our energy requirements. So to com you're not comparing like for like. Um, in terms of removing from renewables as well, well, there's a large capital cost involved in setting up these technologies, and these technologies are improving in efficiency as technology is invested and money is invested in them. So to remove both fossil fuels and renewables, you're not comparing a similar thing because one's in its infancy and one's a much more mature market. But in terms of energy created, the, the subsidies that are placed on renewable energies per megawatt vastly, vastly supersede that on fossil fuels. Okay, thank you. I'd just like to kind of question the fundamental assumption in this motion that the market that we so often and free marketeers so often glorify as being infallible. Um, I think the free market system that we're kind of half in now often disregards environmental implications and is distorted in favour of the wealthy and the owners of these businesses, and so the market is, sh shouldn't be left to the side. Okay, thank you. Uh, comments from these two members here? On, on the question of subsidies, I, I would agree that fossil fuel should not be subsidised, but... I disagreed with one of the speakers behind me who was suggesting why renewable subsidies should not be removed is because it is worth a price to reduce the carbon dioxide production in the atmosphere. That is worth a price. You can't, if you let them slug it out in the open market, it's obviously fossil fuels are going to win because they are in fact cheaper they do tend to be cheaper to use. There's no getting away from that. Basically, I do think we need to have not, not so much subsidy, but at least research and development support for other forms of energy. The gentleman next to you. Yes, in the best of all possible worlds, of course, we'd have, we'd have workers' control of everything and have it all organised by some great national plan, as you would not obviously be in charge. But if we're going to remove tax breaks and subsidies, then it should be across the board. I think if there's perfect, if there are free markets and there are perfect competition and everyone's starting at the same starting point, then I could support this motion. But as other more learned people have said here in this debate, that's not the case. So to present it as if there is perfect competition, removing subsidies across the board would mean everyone competes completely and equally, I think it's a little bit ridiculous. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, right, I'm going to move straight to Johnny now, uh, and then we're going to vote on this motion. Okay, so just as a rhetoric champion pointed out here, um, you may not agree that the market can actually decide fairly. This is what we call a presupposition. So if you agree to this motion, you're not just um, agreeing to removing subsidies and tax breaks, but you're also agreeing that, in principle, the market can decide fairly. So you may agree with that point, which is your right, of course, but just be aware that you're actually voting on two things in this motion. Thank you. Okay. We have uh, yes, 18, no, 24.
Okay, we're going to go to our third and what will have to be our final late day motion. Last one. Um, this motion was put up there before the whole thing even started. It didn't mainly, basically, only called for more research. It said fracking should be banned or should be a moratorium in place and discontinued until we know more about the economic and environmental consequences because currently the research is inadequate and playing catch-up. And um, that's quite clearly meant for commercial fracking. There would be a small amount of exploratory fracking. would include not just a simple definition of economically viable, but as well as social, political impacts, environmental impacts, economic impacts, anything. It would give time to adapt regulation. And also it would give a little bit of time to watch what is happening in the United States if we were waiting in this country and other hopeful follow-ups for another one or two years. Because what's happening in the United States is by many economists actually now described as a new market bubble. And the CEO of ExxonMobil has recently admitted they're not making money. It's quite unclear who's actually profiting from fracking anymore. And I think there needs to be more research, but I also think that just another year or two of more time could lead to quite different opinions. Okay, thank you. A moratorium on fracking. Any comments? Yeah, could we be a bit clear on the difference between what is the difference between exploratory and commercial fracking? Okay, let me go to Joseph and see what... This is obviously a, comes down to a language thing, but yeah, fracking has already been done, but not for shale gas. So if we're going to apply anything to fracking, the first frack job was 1947. It's been done over a million times globally, 25,000 times a year in America. In this country, it's been you know Nottinghamshire has done 192 times. Over 200 wells have already been fracked, but it's the application to shale gas. So. Fracking is the process by which you can extract shale gas, but it's also a process which is, can be used for conventional gas, okay. geothermal and oil. So I think we need to be clearer that if, if we, it's, it's a motion against shale gas development, because if it's against fracking, we're already too late because it's okay. already been done. Are you happy to have that slight adjustment made for shale gas? We can get that up on the screen, I think. Um, look, it's like magic. Okay, thank you. Any other comments? I'd like to support the motion because uh, if um, the environmental concerns are all wrong and global warming doesn't happen, or climate change doesn't happen, then we've got lots of gas under the ground we can use in the future. Okay, thank you. Nothing Other comments? Lost. Yes. I'm actually in two minds about this one. In terms of the rational parliament, this is a really great motion because it calls for evidence and we're all about the evidence for the environmental consequences. However, fracking has been going on in the United States for many years, so we do actually have evidence. And I think that this is quite emotive because it talks about environmental consequences, and we're all worried about our water tables and worried about uh, methane escapes and things like that. Um, however, uh, the costs of um, waiting will always be higher because um, doing exploratory stuff now will always be cheaper than doing it in five years simply because of inflation. Thank you. I want to take one final comment from Angela Smith. Thank you very much. I think the motion's anti-scientific, actually. I think, you know, the current experimental exploratory fracking is about discovering the extent to which the potential for shale gas can be exploited. But I think the real key point is that the, the, the US, the assessment of the US data on shale gas extraction as being collected and used for assessment in the UK, not from the industry, but from the US regulatory authorities and from academia. So we do have a very good evidential base already for making assessments as to whether or not shale gas development would be low risk in this country and environmentally acceptable. Thank you very much. Are you happy to read it out? Just one more thing is that it didn't just say environmental, it also said economic consequences and I've, it's been pointed out and I'm aware that it was badly worded. I did not mean fracking, I meant shale gas development. Okay. I was aware that fracking was used 50 years ago. And uh, commercial shale gas development should be not allowed to start until we know more about the consequences. I don't think that the US experience can really be compared to the UK experience. I'm not sure that's... Okay. This House moves that commercial fracking for shale gas development should be discontinued until we know more about the environmental and economic consequences. Okay, the result we have is that yes, 38, no, 22. So that's uh, an actual... Um, leaning towards a moratorium, which is very interesting. And that brings us, with uh, just a very few minutes to go, to our final uh, act of the evening, which is that we are going to vote 
on our um, motion, and this, this is the wording, and we apologize for the, the fact that it is going to be vague and it's going to be something that you'd want to debate for another three hours, but we actually want you to, to kind of move physically into a different space depending on your reaction. Are you for or against the exploitation of shale gas by fracking in the UK? Adam, where do you want people to stand? So all the way down here is a giant big spectrum of for or against. The end is here. If you are completely for this motion, stand here where I am. If you are completely against this motion, stand here and go no further than this balcony here. So please feel free to demonstrate the complexity of this issue and the nuance of your viewpoint <laughs> by standing somewhere on the giant spectrum. This is how we vote in the Rational Parliament. The output is going to be a photograph taken of you all standing on the spectrum from the photographer up there. Okay. So, please, all rise. Find your position. Feel free to talk to one another to sort of calibrate your view with your neighbour. Is this 80%? 85. I think this is like in fractional sense, is this like 80%? I'm going to go slightly this way. Is everyone settled? Is everyone settled? Does everyone feel comfortable with their position? Yeah? Okay. Parliamentary photographer, go. Everybody say fracking. And then now, one more thing. Now I'm going to ask you to move to where you think you were at the beginning of this evening. That's a clear shift to against. So we've seen, so chronologically, most people have moved towards the fore end of the spectrum in the course of tonight's debate. Just want to note that, that's interesting. Great. Thanks very much, everyone. That's great.